We are going to Phoenix, Arizona this December. Yes, that's right. Phoenix in December. I know, right? But think of it. If you could be going to any place in the world, you could be going to Nome, Alaska. You could be going to Canada. You could be going to Belarus or Poland. Or, or think of it this way, you could snowbird it, go down to Phoenix, Arizona. And if you're there between the 18th and 21st, you can go to the largest conservative event of the entire year. It's taking place. It's called America Fest. Not only does it have myself, Tucker, Charlie Kirk, Candace, Kaylee, Donald Trump Jr., maybe some other, some other people with that last name as well, but we are going to have some of the biggest country music stars that include Brantley Gilbert, Ray Lynn, Russell Dickerson, Lee Greenwood, Adam Doliak, and DJ Silver. So go make sure you get there. I'm going to be there. I'm bringing the kids. We're bringing the entire Poso family. It is going to be fantastic. So use, by the way, promo code POSO, capital P-O-S-O in all caps to get 25% off your tickets when you order AmericaFest. Go to tpusa.com backslash AmericaFest. See you there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard today's edition of Human Events Daily. Today's top stories powered by Turning Point USA. How I debunked, actually he debunked his own, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's entire life's work. We're going to get into it. The story the entire internet is talking about next. All the latest news and information regarding the kickoff of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Third, Alec Baldwin faces the press with a really bizarre statement. And then finally, 60 Minutes features a transhumanist on their latest show. All this and more ahead, Human Events Daily. So this is going to be one of those weird stories where I find myself in the middle of it because, of course, I tweeted something, somebody responded to me, it goes back and forth. Now there's articles, the Daily Mail's covering this, it was trending on Twitter, it's all over the place. So let's explain what happened. I tweeted an article from my friends over at the Post Millennial, and I wrote, Ibram X. Kendi accidentally admits minority applicants have a better chance of getting into college and deletes the tweet. Here's the tweet that he deleted. More than a third of white students is a study out of the hill.com. More than a third of white students lied about their race on college applications. And about half of those applicants lied about being Native American. More than three fourths of these students who lied about their race were accepted. And then I wrote, he posted this and then deleted it after realizing he just debunked his life's entire work in one, one tweet. Because of course, even Kendi is the guy who says there's systemic racism against people of color. And yet you see, white students saying that they're, of course, uh, claiming to be people of color so they can get into college. Then he says, listen, now, now the Olympics begin, the mental gymnastics. They lie about what I said. This is Kendi. They lie about what I said to defend the lying of white college applicants. Well, I wasn't defending the lying. I was talking about your work and your theory. Then he goes this. Here is their line of thinking, tortured line of thinking. When white applicants think they have an advantage by lying about being a person of color, then that means they do have an advantage, which then means structural racism doesn't exist. Actually, yes, that is what it means. So as an update, he then blocked me without giving me a chance to respond. He then started melting down on Twitter. Chris Rufo wrote, Ibram Kendi now claiming that Jack Posobiec's tweets making fun of him are violence and that his own tweets battling a ratio are the equivalent 
of resistance to slavery. Wow. Uh, hilarious meme, by the way, comes up. Grand old memes, gum, you got to follow this guy. And it's Kendi just going through the notions of explaining how it's slavery for him to debunk his own life's work and then have to go through and defend against us pointing out that he debunked his own life's work. And we got, of course, the hat trick. What does that mean? Three tweets in a row, three tweets in a row of his that all got ratioed. And a ratio, of course, means there are more replies than the tweets, uh, retweets to the tweet itself. But since we're talking about his own words, let's repeat Kendi's own words. Let's go to some video. My friends at Myth Informed MKE pulled this up. Take a look at this video. Like, and I think I'm understanding it correctly that, like, any policy or potential policy that would have a disparate racial impact is a racist policy. So, if that's correct, then would vaccine mandates that disproportionately affect people of color would that be a racist policy? Mm. So, I. There's two different sort of measures currently. Uh, one measure finds that white Americans are most likely to be resistant to getting the vaccine. And then there's another, there's other data that finds that, that black and Latinx Americans are the least likely to be vaccinated. And so as a result, it's hard to say. Uh, uh, but what I will say is, to me, the actual problem isn't the vaccine mandates. The actual problem is when you actually study those, particularly black and Latinx people who aren't vaccinated, you actually talk to them, we're finding that uh, a lack of accessibility to the vaccine for a whole host of reasons is actually leading to them having a lower rate, while with white Americans, it's more or less the result of their political ideology. So all policies have a disparate racial impact, and they are systemically racist, except for vaccine mandates. Figure that one out. Hmm. And then finally, of course, Ibram Kendi talking about transgenderism. Listen to his own clip. About race, even talking about gender. You know, I, I think it was last week, my daughter came home and said she wanted to be a boy, you know, which was horrifying uh, for my wife to hear, myself to hear. And so, of course, uh, you know, we're like, okay, what affirmative messages about girlhood, you know, can we be teaching her to protect her from whatever she's hearing in our home or even outside of our home that would make her want to be a boy? All I got to say, Kendi, is you should have slept on a my pillow. If you had slept on a my pillow and had the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, you might have done a little bit better in this one. So thank you to everyone for playing. Thank you to Kendi for uh, just just being you, man. Thank you for being you. Today, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse got underway, Kenosha, Wisconsin. So I want to take everyone back to that day, August of 2020, to remind everybody what was going on in that situation, everything that happened, everything that went down, not just that night, but that entire week, which was leading up to the events of that evening, who Kyle Rittenhouse was, obviously the fact that this trial is going to be one of the biggest ones, not just for Second Amendment proponents, but also this idea of whether or not the law of self-defense 
right, is applicable in this situation, and whether we have this. It also speaks to, I think, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, a bigger question of where we are as a society and which forces do we want to support in a society. The 12 members of the jury are being chosen. I believe they're actually going to seat 20, so 12 um, in the box, and then uh, active um, jurors, and then eight applicants, or eight uh, replacement jurors if they need alternates. So let's go back on this. You have a situation, Kenosha, Wisconsin, where after the arrest and shooting of Jacob Blake, who attacked a police officer with a knife, right? After he was harassing a woman that he had sexually abused and potentially was in a kidnapping situation with children, the people that descended on Kenosha went in for absolute anarchy, mayhem, arson, looting, and burning. They burned down businesses, entire city blocks. I've gone there. I've walked all those blocks. I've walked those miles. Even uh, weeks after this, even months after this, you could still see places boarded up. People writing spray painting right on the, um, on the boards outside their businesses. There are live animals inside. Please don't do this to us. Immigrant businesses, it didn't matter because the people that were doing this didn't care about what they were doing. They were indiscriminately out of control. And the police and the National Guard were unfortunately overwhelmed. And actually, the National Guard wasn't called in by the Democrat governor of Wisconsin. So on that night, Kyle Rittenhouse, even during that day, he had been downtown where he worked as a lifeguard and he was scrubbing off some of the graffiti that had happened. He was then asked to stay behind to help sand watch overnight because people were worried about their businesses being attacked. And his friend had a rifle and said, Kyle, I know you have medical expertise. I know you have some medical, maybe not expertise, but medical training. Can you be a medic for us? And I'm gonna hand you this rifle because we're worried that things could get violent tonight. Kyle said, okay. That night, they encountered so much violence, so much anger, arson, and it eventually led to death. Why did it lead to death? Well, it's quite simple. And if you go through the tactical situation, you can figure out what happened. You had several individuals involved in this, three of which became victims, two of which died, one of which is still alive. But there's one person in particular that we need to pay attention to. And his name, we'll see whether or not it comes up at trial, but I think it needs to come up at trial. It's very important that this comes up at trial. Why? Because this is the person, Joshua Ziminski. I want you to remember that name, Joshua Ziminski. Because Joshua Ziminski and Joseph Rosenbaum chased Kyle Rittenhouse down the street after they were participating in an unruly mob, Kyle picked up a fire extinguisher and was running to put out a fire. Joseph Rosenbaum, Joshua Zeminski lied in wait to ambush Kyle. They ran up behind him, pursued him. Rosenbaum throws an object at Kyle. Then Zeminski fires at Kyle. At that point, Rosenbaum goes to grab Kyle Rittenhouse's gun. 
he has been screaming before earlier that evening that I will kill you. At that point, when Kyle is fearing for his life because this person is trying to disarm him is when he fires the first shots in self-defense. Then he runs, the mob chases him, and he continues to defend himself from their deadly attacks. All of this is on video. We also have a 17-second video of drone footage that we have not even seen the rest of this, but I'd love if we could get the rest of it out. Let's take a look at that footage now. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast version of this, I want to be clear. You can see on the video that people are running away from that parking lot before Kyle Rittenhouse makes it in by himself. Why is that? Because they are running from the shot fired by Joshua Zeminski. The first shot of that night, the shot by which Kyle realizes he's now under attack, deadly attack, and he has to take steps to defend himself. Pay attention, ladies and gentlemen, to who talks about this, to which conservatives bring this up, and to those that virtue signal against it. So, of course, we've been covering the Alec Baldwin story, everything that's gone on since the homicide of his cinematographer on set. We now know, of course, that it was a live gun. There was live ammunition in there. We don't know where the live ammunition came from. Obviously, that's a huge focus of the investigation right now. Who put that live ammunition there? Was it supposed to be there? Was this negligence or was somebody messing around? Was this an act? And we've reported, I believe, exclusively here at Human Events Daily, was this a case of sabotage? Was somebody trying to sabotage this? We know there's been a lot of problems on the set. We know there were a lot of issues between the production of the stat of the set, um, of the people that are actually behind the movie and the staff. We know that people left the staff and then walked off, they brought in more staff, okay? So union labor disputes. Obviously this becomes an issue for Baldwin because Baldwin was a producer of this. We also have reports that there were other, that there were other uh, gun issues, firing issues that took place as many as two to three prior to the shooting death that took place at the hands of Alec Baldwin. So of course, all of this is going to be under investigation and it currently is under investigation. So Baldwin goes out and I believe he's out in Vermont, he's out with his family and he goes and gives a bizarre statement to press that seemed to have been following them around. Instead of um, just sort of blowing them off, he decided to try to engage with them and he gave the following statement, which I'm going to play in its entirety. Let's go, let's go. I will. What do you want to know? All right, Ali, what's the current state of what's going on with the case? I'm not allowed to make any comments because it's an ongoing investigation. I've been ordered by the Sheriff's Department in Santa Fe. I can't answer any questions about the investigation. I can't. It's an active investigation in terms of a woman dying. She was my friend. She was my friend. The day I arrived in Santa Fe to start shooting, I took her to dinner with Joel, the director. We were a very, very, excuse me, we were a very, very, you know, well-oiled crew shooting a film together, and then this horrible event happened. Now, I've been told multiple times, don't make any comments about the ongoing investigation, and I can't. I can't, I can't. That's right. it. And you met what with... Are the, sorry. What are the questions that you have other than that? You met with the, uh, the, the, the um, 
Now, I'm guessing that his lawyers had probably asked him, hey, don't talk to press, don't say anything. But he decided to do this. Now, I got a lot of flack over the weekend for talking about this and bringing this up and said, hey, hey, isn't, isn't he the victim of a crime? How is he liable if he's not the one who loaded the gun? Folks, we've talked about this. Under New Mexico law, and they were in the state of New Mexico, it does not matter who loaded the gun for the purposes of involuntary manslaughter. I've said before, I don't think this is murder. I don't think this is in any way murder. This is clearly unintentional. Also, he obviously did not intend to harm anyone in any way. So it's not even third degree murder. That being said, his reckless action, and it wasn't just negligent, it was reckless because he was handling a dangerous instrument, which he knew to be a dangerous instrument. He knew that was a real gun. You can tell the difference between a plastic gun and a metal gun. You can tell the difference between an airsoft gun and what he was holding, which was a Colt 45. It wasn't a replica. This was the real deal. So when it comes to all of this, Baldwin, you need to stop giving statements like this to the press. You need to get better lawyers. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for continuing to support us, continuing to watch Human Events Daily. Share this podcast out, share it with your normie friends, being that influence agent. We are still top three, by the way, I just checked top three on Chartable for Apple Politics. So continue to support us and support yourselves, by the way. Christmas is coming up. You got the Christmas season coming. Make sure to go mypillow.com, use promo code POSO, get the six pack of towels, get the bed sheets, get the topper and get the pillows, of course. Get that greatest night's sleep. You got Joe Biden, 42% Biden over there, uh, falling asleep at the, the, what is this? The COP 2021 in Glasgow, the big green new whatever out there. He's falling asleep because he didn't sleep on a my pillow last night it's as simple as that by the way joe biden 42 percent with the entire apparatus propping him up the entire media industrial complex backing up this guy and he can only get 42 percent in one of their rigged polls with president biden that's how bad things are but listen to how bad things could get we talked on friday about transhumanist Yuval Harari. He's kind of one of these thought leaders and he plays it off like he's this analyst and he's like, oh, it's, you know, I'm just worried. I'm just observing this. I'm just, you know, paying attention to what's happening. We know what side you're on. You're a World Economic Forum guy. You're a Davos guy. We talked about him on Friday. What happens next? He goes on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper just yesterday. 
You see, ladies and gentlemen, you listen to Human Events Daily, you get tomorrow's news today. So listen to what he, this is the guy who on the last episode we talked about, he was getting into hackable animals or humans hackable animals. He had his book, Homo Deus, Human Gods. Listen to what he said to Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes. You said, we are one of the last generations of homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from chimpanzees. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? That freaked me out. You know, we'll soon have the power to re-engineer our bodies and brains, whether it is with genetic engineering or by directly connecting brains to computers or by creating completely non-organic entities, artificial intelligence, which is not based at all on the organic body and the organic brain. And these technologies are developing at breakneck speed. If that is true, then it creates a whole other species. This is something which is way beyond just another species. Yuval Noah Harari is talking about the race to develop artificial intelligence, as well as other technologies like gene editing that could one day enable parents to create smarter or more attractive children, and brain-computer interfaces that could result in human-machine hybrids. What does that do to a society? I mean, it seems like the rich will have access, whereas others wouldn't. One of the dangers is that we will see in the coming decades a process of, of, of uh, um, greater inequality than in any previous time in history, because for the first time it will be real biological inequality. If the new technologies are available only to the rich. So you understand how it works, right? This is how they achieve Elysium. He wants to make sure, he wants to make sure that economics and financial status will not be a barrier for entry, of course, for any of this transhumanist stuff, because they want you in the system. They want to deny your humanity. This is what Zuckerberg is up to with Meta, the Metaverse, the Zuckerverse, all of it. This is the way they are pushing this stuff. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for watching us. Thank you for supporting. Thank you. Go to your podcast app. Leave us your five-star review. Share this out with your normie friends. Continue to tell them Turning Point Live, breaking stories, getting tomorrow's news ahead today, and... Our motto to you, of course, be good, be brief, be gone. We give you the bottom line up front. But before we go, it's time for today's moment of history. November 1st, almost 1,200 years ago, 837 AD, was when Pope Gregory IV instituted today as All Saints Day. So today is All Saints Day, also known in Old English as All Hallows Day, that is the Feast of All Hallows. That's why the evening before is referred to as All Hallows Eve or Halloween. This, of course, is the Christian origin story of Halloween, as well as this entire period known as Tide. Tomorrow, of course, is All Souls Day. So, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore.